Our reading today comes from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Well, good morning and welcome here. My name is Matt and I am the director of youth ministry here at Christ City. And it is just my joy to be opening up God's word with you today. Now, for those of you who have been with us over the the past few weeks, you'll know that we've been in an idolatry series, which has been uh, super rewarding and super insightful time. I don't know about you, but it's really helped me to identify uh, some of the different areas of my life where I've been looking to idols to actually provide in ways that only God can, where I've been, you know, worshiping something else in my life as king rather than God. So this has just been such an amazing series over the last few weeks. But today, we're entering into a new series in the book of Psalms. And our first Psalm is Psalm 24. Now I just want to pause here for a second and I want to mention right off the bat uh, that this Psalm is coming straight out of our Bible reading plan this week. And this was actually intentional. All of the Psalms that we're going to be looking at over the summer come straight out of the Bible reading plan. Now, I know that Brett has been uh, talking about the Bible reading plan a little bit uh, a few times, but I want to come alongside him and I want to just encourage you and just say that if you aren't already on the Bible reading plan, get on the plan. Get on the plan. You know, the Word of God, it's powerful to transform. It's living and it's active. It, It pierces into your soul and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, So join us on this plan. You allow yourself to be transformed by the daily reading of God's word. If you want to join us, there's actually a link on our website where you can do that. You can go there, you can click that link and start following along with us as we read the Bible together. Okay, let's unpause here and get down into Psalm 24 today. Now, this psalm is like the perfect psalm to be looking at right after an idolatry series because this psalm is all about God the King. It's all about his rule. It's about his reign, his goodness, his glory. It's about his kingship, which is a perfect transition out of our idolatry series because all idolatry is, if you think about it, is making something other than God the king of your life. So what better way, what better way to start a series in the Psalms than by looking at the true king that we worship, 
God Almighty. So that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to examine this psalm and we're going to see what it teaches us about God's kingship. And what I want us to see today is that we've got a king. We've got a king and he's coming back. That's my big point. We've got a king and he's coming back. And we're actually going to explore this in three ways. First, we're going to look at the king himself. Next, we're going to examine the king's people. And finally, we're going to hear about the king's return. So the king, the king's people, the king's return. First, the king. If you have your Bibles, look with me at verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Right from the get-go here, the psalmist paints us a picture of the God that we worship. And he paints us a picture of a God who owns everything and everyone. He's the almighty king whose, whose dominion extends to all places and all people in the world. Now, it's important for us to note here, before we go any further, that this is not the only place of, in the Bible that speaks of God like this. You know, the language of God actually owning the earth is a common theme that we found, find throughout Scripture. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 10, verse 14, we read, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Or in the book of Job, it says this, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You see, creation is his. We are his. He's the owner of everything and everyone. He's the king. He's the king of the universe. Now, the psalmist actually kind of doubles down on this just to make sure that we fully understand what he's saying by actually elaborating a bit more on what this means in verse 2. For he has founded it, meaning the world, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, this here is creation language. This language is meant to remind us of the creation story that we, we read of in Genesis. So what the psalmist is ultimately pointing us to here is that God, God has created the world. Meaning that he doesn't just own it, but he owns it because he made it. So the psalmist so far has painted a picture of God, the king. He's the, the creator, owner God of the universe. He is the one who rules over everything and everyone because he made everything and everyone. And all of this, you know, everything we've been saying so far, it's meant to drive us to a place of just awe before him. We should hear this description of God and we should be driven by it to a place of worship. You know, if what the psalmist is saying is true, then everything we do in our lives is in God's hand. You know, even the most minute detail of our lives have been purposed and planned by God because he owns everything and everyone. 
He created us. And we should praise this God, praise him as our great, great king. Now, I hear the objection. You know, I can sense some of the uncomfortableness in what I just said. God owns you. You know, some of you hear that and you cringe at it. You hear that and you think, wait, what's he saying? God owns me? Like, he owns me like I own my house or I own my car? Doesn't that mean that, you know, he can kind of just do whatever he wants with me? Doesn't that mean, you know, he can kind of toss me aside like a, like a piece of trash when he's done with me? No, I, I, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to believe that. I, I don't want to be owned by anyone. But this objection, I think at least, I think, comes from a misunderstanding of how God is our owner. You see, God's not just owner, but like we've already shown, he's also creator, And this is really important for us to understand here. I don't want you to miss this. Because God is the owner and the creator, it means that he's not indifferent to the things that he owns, but rather he cares deeply for them. Think about it like this. Imagine with me two people. Now, the first is just your average Joe, and he goes out, heads to his local car dealership, and he buys a vehicle there, and now, since he's bought it, he owns it. The second is a retiree who goes out, heads to the part shop, buys a bunch of parts, builds his dream car from the ground up in his own garage, and then he drives that thing with pride. Now, they're both owners, right? Right? They both own a car. But if you had to guess, which one do you think is going to care more for their car? Well, the retiree. He built it. You know, his own blood, sweat, and tears, they're, they're in that car. They went into making that car. And because he put energy into it, he's going to care for that thing in a very unique way. You know, the guy who built his dream car, who's actually worked to see it turn out just the way he wants it to turn out, he's going to wash it. He's going to wax it. He's going to change the oil. He's going to maintain it because he's participated in its creation. And this, this is what God's like. He's owner, but he has unique care for us because he's also creator. You know, he's not a God who who tosses his creation to the side like a, a dirty old piece of trash or something like that, but he's a God who intimately cares for and sustains his creation, including you and me. You see, God is the creator, owner, king who's not indifferent to us, but actually cares deeply for each and every one of us. So the psalmist has given us this picture of the God of Scripture. What we find there is that he is the king. You know, he's worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our glory, because he's the wonderful, majestic king of the universe who's created and owns everything that you've ever seen. 
But this picture of a majestic, wonderful, almighty king, this should spark a question in our minds. And it's a question that the psalmist actually asks in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who can enter God's presence? Who can stand in the face of such a great king? Who can stand? Well, the psalmist actually tells us who can stand, and it's the king's people, which is our second point today. Look at verse four with me. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The people who can enter God's presence are people with clean hands or right living, people with pure hearts or right intentions, and the people who don't lift up their souls to what is false or right worship. Only the people, only the people who live rightly with the right intentions and the right worship can enter into God's presence. Only these people can actually stand before this great king. Now notice, it's not just people with clean hands. It's not just people with good intentions or right worship, but it's all three here. You need all three to actually enter into God's presence. You can't just have one. You can't. You got to have it all. And it's important we recognize this because I think that we're really good at putting one or the other of these things above the rest. You know, some of us might claim that we have really clean hands. We do all sorts of charity work, maybe. We curate our social media feeds to show other people how virtuous we are. We participate in all of the right justice movements. And so our hands are clean. But maybe deep down, you're doing all of it for the social credit, meaning that your heart's not pure. Or some of us, you know, we might have the best intentions in the whole world. You know, our hearts are pure. We're on board with all of the good things that we hear of and see, but we do nothing. We neglect to act on our good intentions, and so our hands aren't clean. Or maybe some of us have good intentions and right action, but we do it all while lifting up our souls to what is false. We do these things without worshiping the God who's actually the source of all that is good in the world. So our worship isn't rightly directed. You see, we need all three working together at once to stand in God's presence. And to think otherwise, it's just ridiculous. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the show Hoarders, uh, but imagine with me if the cleaning crew got to that house, right, the hoarder house, and they see all of the junk, right, all of the garbage inside, all of the stuff lying around, and then they go outside, take out their power washer, and they just kind of spray off the outside siding of that house. Well, they didn't really clean the house then, did they? No, it's only clean, only clean when you clean the inside and the outside. You need both. And so do we. 
God's people, the king's people, need right living, right intentions, and right worship to be considered worthy to actually stand in God's presence. We need all three. And if we have all three, well, the psalm actually tells us what the result will be. We will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. When we have right living, right intentions, and right worship, we will receive God's blessing. We'll be declared righteous before him, and ultimately, we will actually be able to stand in his presence and enjoy it, enjoy a relationship with him. So go do it. If these are the things you need, what are you waiting for? Go out there and just do it. Have right living, have right intentions, have right worship. Just go do it. Here's the problem. When I put it like that, right, you know you can't. None of us can. I can't. You know. You know that your hands aren't always clean. You know in your heart that you have done wrong. You know. And if you claim that your hands are clean, well, let's look at your internet history. You know, let's, let's talk to your last employer. Let's call up that estranged family member, maybe. Your hands are unclean. Listen to what God says of you in Isaiah. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers... I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And you know that your hearts aren't pure. You know that you've thought things and desired things that you would want no one else in the world to know. You know. If I said to you, right, that I was going to attach a device to your head that was going to broadcast all of your thoughts, all of your desires to the whole world, you would never ever agree to it because you know, you know that your heart is not pure. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. You know that your worship isn't set on God. I mean, we just did a whole series on idolatry to show that our worship's not always set on God. We all fail to worship God the way we should. We all fail to acknowledge the source of all that's good. And we worship the creature rather than the creator. As it says in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we're lost, right? We're screwed. The king's people have to live a certain way in order to enjoy his presence, and we are miserable, miserable failures at it, each and every one of us. We simply cannot measure up. We can't. And that's the problem. But there is a solution. 
And that solution is a person named Jesus Christ. You see, God knew we can't measure up. He knew that our hands were dirty. He knew that our hearts were warped. And he knew our worship was wrongly placed. But he didn't toss us out like trash and just abandon us. He didn't. But he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life we never could. His hands, they were clean. His heart was pure. He never, ever faltered in his worship. And he took his right living, his right intentions, his right worship to the cross. And he died a death he didn't deserve. Taking the punishment for all of our bad living, all of our bad intentions, all of our bad worship, the punishment for our failure, and he endured it himself on the cross. The wrath of God that was reserved explicitly for us was fully poured out on him and he endured it so that we would never, ever have to. He died for us. And then he rose from the dead, defeating death. And he actually ascended to heaven where he has been exalted as our great king. You see, God knew we could never measure up in our sin. God knew we would never be able to stand before him with clean hands, with a pure heart, with right worship in our own strength. He knew it. So he sent Jesus Christ, his, very, his son, God of very God, fully man, fully God, who took the penalty for our wrong upon himself. And now all who are found in Christ, they're not only forgiven, but they're made righteous. They actually receive Christ's clean hands. They receive his pure heart. They receive his right worship as their own. You know, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. When we are found in Christ, very God of very God, the King, the King, we are made righteous in him. We become the King's people in Jesus. So we've seen how God is the great king of the universe. We've seen this. We've seen what he requires of his people, and we've seen that we simply don't measure up. We just don't. But we've also seen that the king came in the person of Jesus Christ, and he made a way for us to actually enter into a relationship with him. And to all those that believe in Jesus, to all of God's elect who put their trust in Christ, a way has now been made for us to stand in God's presence. But that's not the end of the story. Look with me now at our third point, the king's return. Let's read verses 7 through 10 together. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. 
and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now, when you first hear this, I wouldn't be surprised at all if your reaction was kind of similar to my reaction when I first read it. Why is he talking about gates and doors? I mean, if we're being honest, you know, it's kind of seems a little bit silly. It's a little bit weird. It seems a little bit strange. But we need to understand here that for the psalmist, the place of God's dwelling would have been within the city of Jerusalem. So with that in mind, the picture that we're actually presented with is someone singing to the doors and the gates of the city of Jerusalem to open up so that the king can enter in, so that the king can come in. It's a song celebrating and praising the coming of the king, the return of the king to his city so that he can actually be with his people. And this picture is the ultimate hope of Christianity. See, our hope, it doesn't end with the fact that we've been forgiven. Even though that's great, it doesn't end there. It doesn't even end with the reality that we've been made righteous in Christ. Even though that's amazing, it doesn't end there. But it ends, it ends with the return of our great King, Jesus Christ, who's not only coming back to dwell with us, but he's coming back to actually set everything in the world to rights. You see, one of the unique things about Christianity is that we are not hopeless about the world. We know right now that there is a king. We know that he is ruling and reigning over the whole universe, and we know that he is a good king who loves us. We know he's coming back to restore everything one day to perfection. And if we know that, If we know these facts, we should lift up our praise with the psalmist. You know, we should explode in worship with him, singing, you know, lift up, you gates, lift up the doors, because we know, we know and look forward to the return of the king. We long for the day, long for the day when he rides through the gates and sets up the dwelling place of God once and for all with man. We long for the day when he returns and he's promised to wipe away all of our tears. We long for the day when Christ comes and makes all things new for the day when the thirsty can drink from the spring of the water of life for free and be eternally sustained, eternally. We long for the day when our joy will be completely fulfilled because we are with our King. But until then, we can know that we have a king and he's coming back. We're going to respond now by taking communion. If you are gathered in your house church today, we just encourage you to to get the elements ready now to participate in the communion meal. And as you partake of communion, be reminded of Christ's broken body and shed blood for you on the cross. Be reminded of Christ's kingship and his eventual return. Be reminded, be reminded that one day he is coming back to actually dwell 
with you. Let's read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 to prepare us for this meal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you don't yet believe in Jesus, we'd simply ask that you refrain from participating in communion today. And this isn't to make you feel awkward, it's not to make you feel like an outsider, or make you feel weird, but rather it's because this meal is a sign that we declare Jesus Christ to be the King and Lord of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word today. As we head into communion, I just pray, Lord, that you would be doing a work by your Spirit, reminding us of your kingship, of your glory, of your goodness. And Father, we are just so thankful that we have a king, that we have you as our king, that your son Jesus is sitting at your right hand, ruling as king right now over the whole universe. And Father, we are so thankful because we know that he has our good in mind in all of his decisions. Father, I pray that you would just empower us uh, to go out and to preach this this good news of, of the universal king to all people. Father, fill us with your spirit, I pray. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.